Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail, China's changing appetites and what that means for New Zealand. The Chinese government has outlined a plan whereby it hopes that its citizens will consume 50% less meat. China's plant-based food industry is fed in part by an increasingly health-conscious middle class. Environmental and ethical concerns are driving the trend too. On the back of COVID-19, this has really ramped up people's willingness to engage in flexitarian, vegetarian, vegan diets uh, because there is a growing perception that meat is a virus carrier. New Zealand beef and lamb exports to China have been steadily growing over the last couple of years. In 2019, the industry was worth $1.5 billion. But entrepreneur and longtime businessman in China, Jade Gray, says times are changing and COVID-19 has created the perfect storm. I see there's a chance for New Zealand to double its protein exports to China. There's no reason we couldn't create an alternative meat industry as significant and as large scale as we do have a meat industry. And the good news is that there's still time to get into this race. And with growing fears about food safety, being able to trace food is also coming to the forefront. Here's Gavin Liu-Yang, a businessman who helps Kiwi companies crack the Chinese market. Trust is very important for uh, China consumer um, the, from their bottom of their heart. And uh, they want to find all kinds of different ways to verify this is a real product. Yeah, so it is important for us to uh, to prove to our consumer that they're getting the best product and it's real product. We'll talk more about product tracing later, but first, back to Jade Gray from Plant Tech Nation. I asked him how he got interested in China. Interest in China started in 1993, where I studied uh, Chinese university and uh, in marketing. So I was always pretty set on the China market. And then uh, lived there ever since, pretty much from 1998 onwards. Um, and so, yeah, just just felt back in the day this was going to be the next big thing, and um, and hence it was. You were right. I was right. <laughs> um, I got some pretty odd looks at uni back in the day, but um, you know that seems to have been confirmed now that it was you know obviously going to be the really the key shift um, geopolitically, economically, culturally uh, mm. in the world in this you know in this coming century. So fascinating place to be in um, and spent the last 23, four years kind of having a front row seat living in, in China. And during that time, Jade Gray has been heavily involved in the food industry all over China, from cattle farming to butchery to opening his own restaurant group, Gung Ho. In the last few years overseas, he started noticing something big happening – a growing interest in plant-based food. So after decades in China, Jade moved back to New Zealand to start developing alternative meats for Asian markets. You know, when I first noticed this trend building in China, probably about 2016, it was more anecdotal. And I had friends who were vegan or, um, you know, following online different food groups. And then we had customers asking for product in in our restaurants. Um, and so we developed, uh, actually we were the first pizza chain in China to develop a vegan mozzarella cheese, mm. dairy-free, uh, in 2018. And then a uh, the first to develop or to launch a vegan pepperoni. Um, so, you know, we've kind of been at the edge in China uh, with MPD, uh, new product development. Once we kind of picked up our own trends and what impact it had on our sales, I started getting more and more research and there started to be more information out there. 
right now, you know, it's a lot of guesstimates. It's very much in, in its infancy still. Um, but the, the suggestions are it's around about a $1 billion market in China. Um, right. is currently the alternative uh, meat sector. And a lot of that typically right now is in the Buddhist restaurants, okay, with their mock meats. China's had alternative meats for over a thousand years. And the Buddhists um, who do not eat meat, the monks developed ways of playing with fermented foods to replicate meat. And so they have a very long, um, steep history in, in alternative meats. And the West in recent years has really you know, fast forward and turn it more into a food technology rather than cooking. Um, and that wave is coming back into China from the West uh, in terms of commercialization. And now China is looking at its roots in that space. Um, but secondly, looking forwards and looking at the consumer's needs as well as other stakeholders, primarily the government's needs um, around food security, around climate change, water scarcity, arable land issues, and um, there's a raft of really large macroeconomic forces at play, which has kind of created the perfect storm on the back of COVID-19 mm, yeah. of plant-based nutrition and uh, plant protein being the, I guess, the, the jewel in the crown. You talk about how the the government has a lot to play with this and, and they passed a goal that they wanted uh, and to halve the amount of meat consumption by 2030 and, and that goal was established in 2016. Yeah, the government's dietary guidelines changed in 2016. And exactly, they wanted to cut uh, meat consumption per capita uh, in half by 2030, which is just a, quite a mind-blowing statistic. And that goal didn't go unnoticed, even getting a shout-out from an advert with big Hollywood stars. The Chinese government have support from a, a perhaps an unusual source. James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor and the director of... Avatar movies and the Terminator movies. The more I went to do my physical, the more doctors started stressing, says, Arnold, you got to get off meat. So I'm slowly uh, getting off mm. meat, and they tell you that I feel fantastic. What China's doing right now with this announcement of trying to reduce meat by 50%, you just have to respect that. I mean, that's a leadership position. The big force for the government um, right now, or best, especially back in 2016, um, there was already pressure building in the food supply in terms of a, they're a huge food importer and the reliance on imported foods. And a lot of that is because a lot of arable land has been given to real estate development in China. Uh, there's been an overuse of uh, and pretty relatively poor water management in, in China. Now there's a, you know, a lot of uh, stress on the water supply. Uh, you've also got their commitments towards climate change, and China's really taken quite a leading position in this. Uh, so there's various factors, but the big one has been around food security. And with the 2016 election in the States, where both candidates were pushing for pretty, what would be described as a, a kind of an anti-China stance, right. and China really started to look at the vulnerabilities they have in regards to their food importation, which a lot of it is from America, and in particular soybean, uh, which feeds the majority of the Chinese livestock. That is the biggest imported um, animal feed. So they realized that a real bit of an Achilles heel uh, when it comes to their food security. So that was probably the key driver um, to make that change. Also, on back of Chinese diets have been probably going downhill in the last 20, 30 years of modernization. And they've taken up a lot higher incidence of you know, diabetes, heart disease. A lot of the Western ailments have crept in to the, West, to the Chinese society. 
and a lot of that has been put down to a more westernised diet, uh, specifically around you know certain things like meats and dairies have been questioned. And what about consumers themselves? Have their tastes changed as well? Yeah, so at a similar time, we had two other events that happened. One was with the consumers, and that was the uh, African swine fever outbreak in 2018, uh, which decimated the, the China's pea population, which is the, the major protein source in, right. in China with meat. And they got cut in half. Uh, and as a result, people were forced to look at other sources of protein. And I think at that point, you notice consumers, one, they started to get a bit worried about meat. There was avian flu, there was swine fever, there was all these kind of issues associated with the meat supply. Secondly, they started changing their their conversation and their vocabulary, and they started talking about protein rather than meat. And so people are looking, well, where do you get your protein from? And um, mm. that's probably come more out of the fitness industry, um, but it's slowly crept into mainstream conversation. And so consumers are less worried now. Is the protein from meat? Is it from dairy, from eggs? Is it from plants, seafood? You know, everybody's looking across the spectrum. And on the back of COVID-19, this has really ramped up people's willingness to engage in flexitarian, vegetarian, vegan diets uh, because there is a growing perception that meat is a virus carrier uh, in mm. Asia. And that's brought about through some bad press of the wet markets, which have been you know, part of the epicenters of, of, yeah. of the outbreaks, combined with probably some pretty uh, lax food safety management and you know, systems uh, through the food chain in, in China. Uh, so consumers have really stuck their head up and, and also they want to boost their immunity and they're educating themselves a lot more about what does make me, you know, make my fitness and wellness stronger. The global meat industry is worth nearly a trillion dollars. International figures show that China consumes around 28% of the global meat supply. So as far as markets go, China is a huge one. Experts here in New Zealand were already looking at the effects of alternative proteins prior to COVID-19. Farmer-backed organisation Beef and Lamb even released a report in 2018 that said it expected large-scale production of alternative meats in just five years' time. And Jade Gray says while New Zealand beef and lamb exports to China are currently on an upward trend, it's not all as it seems. You know, it's, it's on the back of decades of hard work, both from New Zealand Inc. and uh, the, the private sector and industries. But we need to be careful about reading what that means. And what I've seen is that it's actually been people looking for safer forms of protein has been part of it. So it's not necessarily that there's something liking New Zealand's story and we're doing a better job marketing up there, which we are definitely making gains, and I've seen it firsthand. But I think a bigger trend has been built on the fact that Chinese consumers aren't trusting local produce as much. They're not going to the wet market. They're going to supermarket, more high-end retail online, where they're getting access to imported product a lot easier and more willing to pay for safer imported produce, which they typically trust more, and mm. brands like New Zealand. So what that trend actually is, is people looking for safe forms of protein. Not necessarily saying they're looking for New Zealand lamb or beef. Which is an important distinction. Correct. Yeah. Because what happens when there are other solutions out there, which there aren't right now on scale, but what happens when they can actually stick their head up and say, oh, I, I can have you know, good imported meats, but I can also get good imported plant-based meats. And what if they're really compelling options? Maybe they won't go towards the traditional conventional meats. Mm. So we need to hedge ourselves against that. Um, and that, that really is, uh, I guess, you know, one of my missions about coming back to New Zealand is to um, build on, you know, kind of 
um, help give customer insights and market insights um, to an industry that I absolutely adore. So then what does this mean for New Zealand? Because we export a lot of our meat to China. Does this mean that we need to really rethink what we're doing in this space? I think there is an incredible opportunity. And I see this as a chance for New Zealand to double its protein exports to China. There's no reason we couldn't create a alternative meat industry as significant mm. and as large-scale as we do have a meat industry if we approach it with all the right stakeholders on the same page. And the good news is that there's still time to get into this race because it is a race. And we need to understand that we're now competing with technology companies. We're not competing with agricultural uh, sectors in different countries. So there is definitely a sense of urgency required. Uh, and there have been actually a lot of you know, research and studies done. And you'll see that you know, post-COVID, I think we can now draw some firm conclusions, which weren't so clear two years ago. And that is that this is not a fad. I believe that uh, New Zealand has some really compelling advantages that we can leverage, that the tech companies out of Silicon Valley can't compete with. What is that? And we're looking at things like you know, a history, a story of producing world-class protein. Uh, we're looking at an incredible amount of infrastructure at universities and research institutes and you know, genetic laboratories and whatnot mm-hmm. in the space of, of meat and tr- conventional meats. We have... You know, some of the world's best farmers and ag sector that can take ideas and make them a reality. And so really the question for me is more about New Zealand finding where is our competitive long-term advantage in this industry. My intuition at this early stage of coming back to New Zealand and, and speaking to various stakeholders is that uh, we're well positioned for kind of upstream. So we're talking about uh, raw materials, ingredients, uh, and R&D. Um, well, what's R&D? Research and development. Right. So really kind of the, the IP uh, behind this movement. And I'm talking about the movement, let's clarify. So we've got alternative meats. We have plant-based. Uh, we have uh, cultivated, which is from meat cells. And then we've got uh, fermenta- fermentation. Um, and also you could, you could say things like whole uh, mushrooms that are kind of uh, used to replicate uh, meat. Mm. So I think New Zealand needs to look at our overall position. Uh, we can really leverage you know, decades of world-class agri-tech, biotech that New Zealand does hold, and how can we move that into which is a, a burgeoning food tech space. Another consumer shift accelerated by COVID-19 is food traceability. Now, when we're talking about food traceability, we're not just talking about where the food comes from, but being able to track every single stage of production, processing and distribution. So why is this important to China? Well, let's just say they've had no shortage of food scandals. Our investigation centred on a bowl of one-ton noodle soup. Specifically... What toxic ingredients are today tainting such a simple dish? At this wholesale market, Wang Zhichang, a chef of 20 years, takes me to buy illegal additives, ones he says restaurants commonly use to cheat consumers. As China's tainted milk scandal spreads across the country, anxious parents are keeping local hospitals busy, making sure their infants haven't been affected by poisoned milk powder. And on this pig farm, we find shells of pharmaceuticals, 
their overuse in China is leading to bacteria resistant to medicine. The government has been trying to get tougher on the amount of antibiotics as well as growth hormones being used in farm animals. But as you can see here, this whole shelf is full of it. The farmer who suddenly appears admits to even more illegal practices. If it's a sick pig, it's definitely going to the market. If it's a dead pig, there's a chance it will go to the market as well. In recent years, police have arrested and charged more than 10,000 people for selling tainted toxic food. They're also passing a tougher food law and say they're doing all they can. We still experience everyday consumer according to our customer service and they saying that they, they are not quite sure if our product is a general product, is real product. Gavin Liu Yang is the founder and chief executive of Trade Monster, a marketing and distributions company helping New Zealand businesses to reach Chinese consumers. He's been doing this for the last six years and says there's more and more demand for quality products that can be traced. There was this still calling saying, hey, we found a fly and uh, still alive in your in, in, we, when we open this um, the milk powder, baby infant milk powder. And uh, so we have to um, provide all necessary information and including our um, the logistic records, our purchasing record, all, our authorization, our stock moving report. And uh, even sometimes we work with the manufacturer um, to have to go through a lab reporting and uh, to provide it to the consumer. Wow. So it is, uh, it is happening and uh, still um, a lot. And uh, our customer service um, this, uh, team, they are experiencing this kind of inquiry every day. Mm. Yeah, not only like a infant milk powder, but also um, the supplements, uh, skincare, food. So it's yeah. not just like food, it's, it's skincare and other products like that too? Exactly, yeah. Well. yeah. So um, the trust is very important for uh, China consumer um, the, from their bottom of their heart. And uh, they want to find uh, all kinds of different ways to verify this is a real product. Yeah, so it is important for us to uh, to prove to our consumer that they're getting the best product and it's real product. <music> Focus on quality and food safety has been a growing trend in China, even before the global pandemic. In 2018, Chinese tech giant Alibaba launched a new feature on their mobile app for their grocery store chain, Herma. With the scan of a QR code, consumers can access detailed information about the products they purchase. This includes things like photos of the distributor's business license, their food safety certifications, complete with a government seal, and even the temperature inside the delivery truck for products that need to be chilled. COVID-19 has only heightened concerns about food safety. And it was the safety of imported goods that was questioned recently after an outbreak of COVID-19 at a wholesale food market in Beijing. Authorities are rushing to contain the outbreak, which is linked to the Shinfadi wholesale food market. This is a huge place that supplies about 80% of the city's food supplies, so they're taking it pretty seriously. Now, they're also raising concerns about imported salmon. After dozens of environmental samples, these are samples taken from the market itself, not from people, came back as positive. The COVID-19 that we have been experienced, that the whole supply chain of our business has been um, affected. Consumers, actually, they are not quite sure 
and uh, if this product is a real product, is a fresh product, or is this product that has been um, the put into warehouse for a long time because they want the product which is uh, fresh, mm. which is um, the most newly produced, and they don't want something living into warehouse for six months or something like that. They worried that they are paying price for a uh, old stock. So, what have you had to do in that? Case, yeah, we have to um, the work closely with our consumer. First of all, to explain to them that this is re- relevant, it's uh, still fresh even after the production for a few months. Secondly, is we work with internally with our supply chain team. Also, make sure that we having the work with our supplier to get the most. Uh, uh, fresh the products um, that they available, and also certainly we work with our logistic partners and to make sure that this can delivered to our consumer and uh, with a uh, efficient uh, time period. And Gavin Liu Yang says it's not just consumers who are after traceability. The more information about products offered at the Chinese border, the easier and faster they get through customs. The traceability and um, from each of the port of our product entering to China and it is very important that they know this is from New Zealand and uh, we have a good relationship with China for business um, relations so um, the, in terms of the tax there's a lot of the tax is duty free tax free mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, a lot of the products that we can go through a bundled warehouse and uh, uh, more efficiently Yeah, so and uh, in terms of every shipment that we um, send to China, we try to provide as much possible of the information and the paperwork together. So that gives the uh, local inspection team and the government some more information. So it's very helpful for them to release the product. So what does this all mean for New Zealand businesses exporting to China? Gavin warns that traceability information may not necessarily mean consumers will pay more for your product. But there are real benefits, developing trust in branding, creating loyal customers and spending less time having to answer questions from customers and border control. Gavin's advice for New Zealand businesses, take traceability seriously. In terms of this kind of a uh, manufacturer, I'm not quite sure sure that they have already realized this is how important because they are not dealing with exporters. They're not working with directly um, dealing with the consumer. But for um, businesses like us and and, uh, dealing directly with the consumer, um, this is one of the top uh, issues that we are uh, facing every day. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ on Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Jade Gray and Gavin Liu Young. Matewa and Zai Jen.